Hey everyone, uh, it's Johnny. This is a really sad day. Bass player, saxophone player, extraordinaire, legend. Brad Hauser passed away yesterday, July 24th, 2023. He had had a stroke last week and it's a sad, sad loss for the world. Sad loss for the music community. Sad loss for his wife and family. My heart goes out to everyone that Brad, you know, touched. Anyone whose life Brad touched, and he touched a lot of lives, man. If you open social media today and you live in Austin, you're part of the music community here, I mean, there is an outpouring of love for this dude. And there's a reason for that. It's because he's one of the loveliest people, uh, really. He was a lovely, lovely man, an amazing musician. He loved playing music. He loved it. He loved it so much. He was uh, such a beautiful soul. He played with so many people. Uh, he's most known for playing with Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Started that band in 1984. Uh, and uh, and around here, like, you know, I saw him play countless times with David Garza. Uh, Lisa Morales wrote a beautiful thing about touring with him and what an inspiration he was to be playing with all the time. Susanna Chaffel. Saw him play with her, saw him play with uh with Patrice Pike, countless others. One day I was uh one day back in like uh twenty seventeen or something, he posted something about playing a happy hour on a Friday and I was off that day. And it was just gonna be him and a drummer just improvising. And so I, I walked down there and uh and I watched all like three hours of it and it was amazing. It was just amazing. Uh it was just amazing watching him be in music. He used to play my friend Todd Wolfson's uh monkey nest shows which he would do on mondays with a conglomeration of musicians a bunch of musicians like well not monday not every monday but like once a month whatever uh i know that 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 brad did a bunch of those and he was just always just so happy to be at a place like playing music even it was monday at a coffee shop with a bunch of goofy people for a coffee card and like 10 bucks or something you know what i mean what a nice nice beautiful man who shared his music and his love with so many people um, I got to talk to him back in September of 2018. Uh, this came out originally on episode 736. Edie Brickell and New Bohemians were about to put out a brand new album. Their first one in a long time called Rocket that was produced by my dear friend Kyle Crusham. And, um, and we had a really fantastic talk about his whole life. And it was amazing because, uh, you know, it sounds a little funny. There's a lot of room sound on his voice because he leaned back. And, and, and I'm saying this because he got really comfortable and, and I wanted to tell him to move up for the sound, but I knew I would get more out of him if he was just leaning back. He was leaning back. He was smiling. He was laughing. He was telling me his whole life story and it's a beautiful conversation. It's nice and long and deep, just like him, man. What a beautiful man Brad Hauser was. Uh, I got to, I got to work on an album that he played on in 2007 or something, this lady, Stephanie Fix. And uh, that's kind of where I got to know him. We uh, we both smoked cigarettes, and so uh, we took smoke breaks together and talked outside a lot. And uh, that's where I got to know him. From then on, we were friends, and I always enjoyed running into him. We always laughed. He always made me laugh a lot. And uh, I loved watching him play music. It was so inspiring. So many nights at the gallery with David Garza. I can't even... Can't even tell you what what those shows were like. They were amazing, and you know they're all mostly improvised. Beautiful, beautiful man, Brad Hauser. Man, rest in peace. My heart goes out to his family and everyone that played with him and everyone that loved him. Um, please enjoy our conversation from episode seven thirty six, from September twenty eighth, twenty eighteen. This is me and this beautiful man, 
Brad Hauser. You're missed and you're loved, buddy. Shake yourself free from the ties of bond. Get yourself clean, have a real good time. Break on out of that prison cell. Wake up out of that hypnospell. What makes you happy? Uh huh. Yeah. What makes you happy? Uh huh. Hey, so let me ask you this. Let's start off here because it's a strange thing. We have a mutual friend, uh, James Rotundi. James. Oh, Roto! Oh my God! Yes. Yeah. Let me uh, put my phone in. Here. How? Uh, how do you know? How do you? How did you come across Roto? Oh man, that was yeah. We had a great time together. Um, in '98, we played with a singer named McKinley. This girl, Christine McKinley from Portland, and. Uh, she had signed to this record label that was hilarious. They were called Gold Circle. They came and went. It was uh, funded by the guy who got rich on Gateway Computers. Oh, yeah. And he hired a staff of old record guys. Nobody knew who. It was hilarious. They, they had a lot of money and no idea what to do with it. And, and Roto and I played a McKinley's band. She had a, her album was out on this Gold Circle. And they were spending all kinds of money, but they were regarded as not. They didn't know what they were doing. And so... We toured in a van a bit, did some tours, and Roto's such a fabulous guitar player. Uh, we went on tour with David, opening for David Crosby. He had a record out on that label at the time, too, and there was a big snafu, and the net effect was we were the opening band, and they forced us not to use our drummer. They didn't want a drum kit in uh, the yeah, opening band, yeah, so yeah. we went out as a trio, and our drummer would sit and watch the show on the nights that we were doing opening sets, and then we'd go do our own shows and be a full band. Right. But like the biggest shows we were doing, I mean, we played the Fillmore and poor Dave Hill, our drummer, was sitting in the audience watching, you know, it was like, and, uh, but Roto was awesome in that, in that situation. He's such, such a great ensemble player. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You're returning to the Fillmore. We are going back to the Fillmore. With Edith Brickell and the New Bohemians. You know, it's funny because this tour and this album are on our exact 30 year anniversary of the first record. Yeah. That one dropped in August of 88. This one's coming out in October this year. And uh, on our first nation, nationwide tour, we played the Fillmore. We played Park West in Chicago. We played, uh, there's another venue or two that we played on that tour. It's like we're almost, except we're going backwards. We're starting west and going east. And we went east to west that first time around 30 years ago. And uh, it, yeah, I were, everybody's real excited. Yeah. The band sounds great. That song, uh, What Makes You Happy, is awesome. What a great song. You know, Edie, Edie came in with that lyric and melody. She was She's on one of those Bob Schneider-type songwriter oh, yeah. groups. Yeah, yeah. I think she's on one up there in, in the New York area somehow. And I think she that song was one of those. that was. And so she came in singing it, and we did it in the control room. And I had a Crushem's uh, Moog. Yeah. And I just, we, we really get the, the tune kind of got the arrangement just kind of came out as we were recording it. And Edie had a, a handheld like 58, I think. Yeah. And I think that maybe ended up being the keeper vocal track too. Cause we were both in the control room and she just really got on fire. And I got really pretty fired up with the bass line and on the keyboard. There's no, uh, my, my P bass is on the end of the song, but Kenny's playing it. 
And uh, so I don't play. Oh, yeah. any, I don't play any electric bass on that song. I'm playing key bass, and then it's my P bass at the end with Kenny playing it because I was out of the studio that day playing at Utopia Fest with Susanna. Yeah. And they were in the studio, mm-hmm. and they came up with that whole outro section with Kenny playing bass. So I should have known better than to leave the studio for a day and leave my basses <laughs> around because Kenny picks it up and just plays this very signature hook at the end. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's playing in the video too. Yeah, yeah, we did that, and he uh, and he actually showed me the guitar part to play in the outro, so I could at least look like I'm playing the right chords. <laughs> and uh, and actually, eventually, with that song live, we may do it where he play, he goes to bass at the end, and I pick up a guitar or something. We, you know, it, it may. We're, we're always subject to morphing live. Yeah. yeah. So let me say uh, the way that you were talking about the way that the the creation of that song came out. That is. That's what this band is. That's one Dude's of our. Playing, that's how she our hit singing, and that's that's it. There that's how go. what I am was written. She came in singing that, and and I think she was singing it in the key of B minor too, because Kenny. She came in singing it, and Kenny just hit those chords. Wow. And he said he'd had been working out those <laughs> wow. chords before, but I hadn't heard it. Right. And all because it was in my dad's garage, and. Um, we wrote most of the first record in my dad's garage, actually. I was still living at home, back out or dropped out of college and just kind of in Dallas. And, uh, Does your dad still live there? Is he still around? Uh, my, we just sold the house. Dad passed in 07, and uh-huh. Mom is in assisted living out in Greenville. Okay. And I'm actually moving to the Dallas area in December after our tour to just to kind of help take care of my mom. Uh-huh. And I, got, I still have friends up there and... And I've been in Austin for 18 years, and I feel like I rode all the rides. But now that I'm thinking, you know, actually leaving here, I'm getting really sad. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's real easy. I mean, I've been here for long enough where you get jaded, and, you know. And I was <laughs> and I, this year, I, I felt really jaded toward Austin at times. Very. But now that I'm leaving and not going to live here for a while, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, God. God, oh my God, Barton Springs, oh my God, Town Lake, oh yeah. my God, just yeah. you name it, you know. Yeah. Oh, but it's all right. It's the right thing to do. The timing and everything else is really. It's. it's I'm supposed. I got. I'm supposed to be up there for a bit. Yeah. It's. And, a, uh, we're getting to that time in our lives, dude. You know? I know so many people, musicians and otherwise, yeah. who are all like two guys in particular are going back and forth, like to Alabama and Florida, yeah. respectively, to help their moms, you know, and. And it's yeah, it's a rite of passage, like especially over fifty, you know, and up. Definitely. It's just like, uh oh, old yeah. parents. <laughs> <laughs> time to time to kick it into take caretaking mode. Um, so so th- you guys didn't I saw on your Facebook page there was a photo <coughs> of you and Brandon from nineteen eighty four from the paper. And you were already called New Bohemians. Right? Oh man, that was right when the band started. We hadn't even met Edie yet, and I was I I Tried to date this girl for a second who was a photographer, and she took the photograph, and we got hooked. <laughs> well, somebody else was writing for the school paper, and they just randomly ran into me and Brandon one day in the lunchroom at school. This is at Richland College, community college up in Dallas, and uh, and they said, "Hey, let's write an article about y'all." We had just started. God, we had barely had any songs. So we had our original guitar player Eric Presswood, and we were like a ska power trio. Okay, <laughs> and our, our our guitar player was our singer, and he kind of sang with a fake English accent, and we were into all the English bands, new wave stuff, and like, uh, and um, and that's where that picture came from, and that was actually in like 
just a room at the community college. They had like a drum <laughs> kit, and like so we kind of pretended like we were playing. Is that where you went to school? Yeah, well, I, I went to after I went to Texas A and M for two years, trying to be an engineer according to my dad's plan. Really? And it was down there that I met the original New Bohemians guitarist Eric Presswood. He was a finance major, but a really good guitar player. And uh, we formed a band my last semester there and just jammed and played a couple of gigs. And really my last semester, especially at A&M, sophomore year, was when I really became a bass player. I mean, I just got bit by the bug hard. Yeah, because you started off on sax? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. sixth grade, did marching band, concert band, made all city and all region a couple of times. Uh, Was first chair alto alto, all through school, you know. And... and, um, I was the only guy who was really into it. The other guys were just more like just kind of showing up and playing. But I was the guy who was into it. Yeah. So, of course, I ended up being first chair. And um, but I never I did, I did, never had like, you know, now I teach I teach sax to high school and middle school kids, or I have been with Anthropus here in Austin yeah, yeah. for a while. And it's like I never had a sax professor, you know. I never did the college saxophone thing. I'm, I'm, I'm as, as much self-taught as anything, at least with the – deep workings of the horn and so as I teach my kids I'm kind of learning myself you know and I'm, I kind of seize the opportunity to like play the scales really slowly with them make sure I'm getting a beautiful sound make yeah. sure my air is good make sure my embouchure is good you know it's like reteaching myself through you know working with eighth graders you know and, and you feel like you're making some strides I'm a better horn player because of teaching these kids wow. for sure yeah because awesome. I was just kind of throw and go before that I mean I was a decent horn player pretty inspired but my chops were kind of ramshackle, and now I've got you know better technique and better air, you know, yeah. more proper everything. Just from and talking to peers too, some of the guys who are legit players have shared tips and stuff. And yeah, and, um, let me ask you this: Let's go back to uh, to College Station. So, how did you get out of the engineering thing? Did you have to make the call? Or oh, I did. I just was my guy, dude. I was like, I discovered <laughs> weed and. and and music and bass. and, and bass and, and I just I was you know the neck if I if I'd have made it to my junior year I was going to go in on academic probation my grades were just gradually going down and yeah, I yeah. you know and and I just and me and my best friend who up in Dallas was also a guitar player and he and I were trying to start a band and go big and so I moved back to Dallas and he and I bought a PA system and like never found a singer and then he and I eventually drifted apart and that's when I met Kenny Withrow and I was just still living at mom's house up in Dallas and uh, went to Eastfield Community College for a semester, just kind of knocking around, went to North Texas in Denton for a year, tried to major in computer science. This was just all kind of trying to hang on and stay at my parents' house. The economy in <laughs> Dallas was just crap. There was no good jobs. It was just hard. Right. The gigs were all like blues bands and cover bands, and there was no original music. And the scene was, I wasn't a good enough bass player to, I don't know, it was just, I was just kind of drifting. And so I met Kenny, and he was still in high school. And we started jamming together via a drummer who lived across the street from my mom, childhood guy who lived there forever. And he, he knew a guy who knew a guy and ended up playing with Kenny. And then eventually, Kenny and I met. Alan Emmert, who lived two streets away, was 16 years old at the time. They all went to Arts Magnet, Arts Magnet High School. And Big Al, Alan Emmert, (laughs) Big Al because he was like as skinny as me. Uh And uh, (laughs) he was 16 at the time, and his mother's a jazz pianist. And 
Alan could play the shit out of bebop at 16, scare you to death. Wow. And we started jamming with him. And it was hilarious because we would like, uh, Alan's mom, Phyllis, and her uh, uh, husband, Alan, the bass player, they had a jazz duo. So every night at 8.30, they would leave to go to their gig like five nights a week. And they said, they told me and Kenny and Al, hey, you guys can jam here at the house like after we leave till 10, you know, we had to stop at 10. So really for a whole summer, man, at least four nights a week, we jammed from 8.30 to 10, me and Kenny and Big Al just improvising kind of electric Miles Davis, kind of one key jams, a lot of that. And Kenny had a hand, couple of prog tunes he'd come up with. And we just kind of, and we, and we were ended up being called the knobs and, uh, uh, John Bush ended up becoming our first singer. We oh, got him in on yeah. percussion, and he could actually sing a bit, and so we got him to sing some stuff. And uh, we played at like a pinball place called Murgatroyd's. That gig's still legendary, and uh, and uh, it's just funny. And then, and this, it, that was like eighty two, eighty three. We just kind of hung out and jammed those years, and then um, I was still living at home. And by then, I'd started. Uh, let me see, in eighty three, I picked up. Yeah, it was a real game changer for me in 83. I randomly picked up a cocktail jazz gig. I mean, wearing tuxedos. Well, it wasn't even jazz. It was like right. Sinatra Light Smooth. and yeah, all yeah. the standards. Yeah. And uh, with this really cheesy piano player who was really good, but he was like big old white teeth and blonde hair, Jerry Hitt. And he actually turned out to be one of the most wonderful people in my life. And... Uh, it was like 75 bucks for Friday and Saturday night at this little bar called the Pentagon run by this uh, Iranian guy in Dallas, total like Dallas scene bar. And, uh, and I started doing that on the weekends and the band leader gave me his ratty old tux he had, you know, I'd put that on and kind of stay in the back and we were doing standards and I'd never even walked a baseline very much at that point. I was just playing funk and rock. Right. And all of a sudden we're doing New York, New York and all these standards, except the thing is he's got a super low voice. Nothing's in standard key. There's no charts. And I'm just, he goes, well, just kind of watch my hands and follow along. And, you know, and I, I've always had decent ears, but man, that shit was kicking my ass. And I made it through the first weekend and he goes, well, I know it's killing you but i can tell you can play and you got good ears so just keep coming back and uh and i did that played with him for a year we eventually went to five nights a week ended up at the hilton up in plano for a while and then uh and uh and the drummer we got was this really good drummer tony miller and uh and he and I were both like into fusion and weather report and shit. So, I mean, I, I, I wonder if he's still got a cassette because he recorded a couple of our gigs and we listened back to it. It was hilarious. It sounded like Jocko and Peter Erskine backing up like a lounge singer on piano. I mean, it was the rhythm section is just full of fire. And we're just like, you know, and the piano is, you know. And But I remember after we'd been playing for a while, the piano player, the band leader, knew a couple of like Freddie Hubbard tunes. And I remember one night we played Little Sunflower late during the week. There was only a handful of people in the club. And man, we went into Magic Land. We finally took him there. We took him into like like the he just smoked a joint and is ready to jam land. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. And he was like, he was going, guys, that was awesome. And he, he goes, I've only felt that a couple of times. And it was amazing. We actually, and the band, that band did, yeah, Jerry hit, man. It was just, I mean, we would do New York, New York four times a night if the tip jar called for it, you yeah, know, and yeah. that was one of his signature pieces. So we played that freaking song twice a night at least. But you know, all that, all that really got me ready for New Bohemians and that writing. And, you know, Kenny was, Withrow was already a pretty advanced player in high school, you know, like our guitar player. And 
he was the guy in the band that would practice. You know, the rest of us practiced. Some were decent on our instruments, but he was the guy who was like putting really, in the time, really pushing. Yeah. You know, and the rest of us have been playing catch up ever since. I think, and, <laughs> uh, and not coincidentally, he was the principal songwriter in the band, and I consider him to be sort of. Uh, the sonic archetype, music, musical architect of the band overall yeah. is definitely him. You know, everything, it's going to, and it took me years to realize that. And then it was like, nah, but it's kind of, you got to know your, it's good when people find their place, you know, yeah. and, 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 and I know what my job is. And, and That's and interesting because it seems like the rest of the world, when they were introduced outside of the whole Dallas scene and people that saw you and knew you, the very first thing they heard was Ken. Oh man, the, yeah. the the guitar solo that everybody thought was Jerry Garcia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, just the opening of that song, you're like, oh my god, oh, those okay. chords. Yeah, man, real... that's like, yeah, yeah. Shoot, hang on. We got company. Got the, got the heat. Hang on. It's the cops. Hey, sir, I'm on pest control. Yeah. Do you mind if I come in? I don't. Do you mind coming back? Is there any way you can come back in like an hour? Uh, or not no? an hour, but I mean, if it's an optional service. Um, that's all right. Yeah, thanks. No problem. Don't have any bugs that need killing? No, but I mean, what are they going to come in here? Yeah, start spraying. Hey, guys, just carry on, <laughs> carry on like nothing's happening. Listen to the podcast and we start <laughs> slowly losing our minds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From the poisons. Um, so... So then you guys started playing. It was how did what you got with Brandon and it was, it was... Well, you know, John, the, the, that story is... Man, there's... Uh, it was like fall of 85. I joined another cover band in 84 and played hotels in South Texas. This band called Broxton. And that was fun too. And uh, we played six nights a week and just did everything from like Silver Wings by Haggard on the first set to Billy Idol by the end of the night. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and covered it all. And uh, <laughs> did that for like nine months in 84. And that was fun. Let and me just ask you real fast. How old were you then? Like I was, I was twenty three that summer. Okay, so because I, I, I turned twenty four in the fall of eighty four, and in the fall of eighty four, I came back to Dallas, quit that cover band, went back to Richland College. Now Richland was a real nexus for us. Brandon went there for a while, a couple of years. Our drummer and Kenny Withrow was kind of going there. He never signed up. We we drafted him into the jazz ensemble because we oh. needed a guitar player. So I'd go pick him up. At his apartment, which he lived nearby, and I'd go, he didn't have a car at the time, so I'd go pick him up from, he'd wake up, okay, Kenny's there, and we'd go to big band rehearsal at Richland, and he played with the Richland Jazz Band at least two semesters, just not ever signed up, just because he was a good guitar player, we needed a guitar player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, uh, and Richland had some great professors, Uh, Jerry Wallace, my theory professor there, had him for two years, God, the best wrote the book on what a good teacher is. This guy's picture there. And then Jim Irwin, the symphonic band director, had a music history course. It was the same thing. It was real game-changing for me. I, I still know almost nothing about classical, but any, anything I know is from him, you know. Yeah. And uh, But that was 84, and I was, yeah, I went back, started going back to Richland again because I went off and on there for like three years, just in between gigs and just kind of here and there. And, uh, and... Yeah, me and Eric Presswood, the original guitar player, we went to Melody Shop one day in North Park Mall, and the guys, you know, had musicians working there in the back, and uh, they, uh, Buddy Barry and Gary Lance were working there. So they said, "Hey, man, we got this band Feet First. You got, yeah, we got a gig tonight down at Schooners. You should come check it out." 
And this was Dallas in 1984, which is a musical wasteland. I mean, blues and cover bands are awesome, but that's all there was. Yeah. It was no, and, and it was a very tight scene. It was all older people, and we were locked out. And uh, so, yeah, me and Press would go down to Schooners that night, and like Feet First was like this ska Neville Brothers groove band, they badass. And uh, and there was like people dancing. There was probably 50 people there. Nice looking women who looked like they were from Austin, not Dallas. This yeah, was 1984. Yeah. The people were cool. Everybody was dressed casual. Yeah. It was it was we were in a different city. We were on a different planet at that point. And it just blew our minds. We stayed for the whole two sets. Just had a blast. Met people, talking to people. And after the gig, I remember me and Presswood were standing outside the place in the parking lot. I was facing east, and I remember I still see it. And I go, man, we need to start a band. I know a drummer, this guy Brandon, he's really into the same shit, ska and stuff. Let's just get him and start a band. And it started that night because I was like, man, we've got to do this. we got to get people dancing. we got to get girls yeah, I mean, exactly. neither one of us could get a exactly. date. I mean, exactly. seriously, it was a, <laughs> Dallas really sucked in 1984. It yeah. was bad. Cocaine ran the the city. It was all about greed and speed and money. Yeah, you know, and it, that was there was precious little else, and and we were just hanging on, man. I, 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 it was really pretty brutal, and uh, and uh, so we started playing, and we had a couple of rehearsals and recorded it, and the next thing you know, like. We went to this party the chick in the theater department at Richland was throwing and like somebody threw in our tape and the next thing you know everybody's dancing and goes, Hey, you guys gotta play a party we're having, you know, in a couple of weeks and so we did that and just started getting more and more gigs and uh started playing weekends after the comedy show at this place called Calm Eddie's this comedy club on Greenville and that was when Edie sat in with us and when it really hit, because she was a friend of a friend of our drummers, and she'd gone to Arts Magnet, so they all had gone to the same high school. I was the only one in the band that didn't go to Arts Magnet. I was a little older, and uh, and so one night, yeah, Edie got up got up with us, and uh, it was the second time because we were playing. We sat in at uh, Eric and Brandon and I were at a, a gig. Some buddies of ours, this band called the Cartoons playing on a Sunday night and we ended up sitting in on their gear at the end of the night and played a song and Edie got up with us and like sang a song because uh, her, her buddy Heather Ezel had goaded her on and said get up there and sing with them and uh, it's very weird how it happened and then um, and that first time she, she sounded okay but it didn't really click and then about three weeks later, we were just starting up this this Friday and Saturday. We'd play like at ten thirty after the comedy show and do like a forty five minute set. And that night, Edie got up with us again, and that's when the shit hit the fan. Was this, this stuff you were playing was like improvisation? Well, yeah, we kind of imp- we improved both times. And the second time, we got this kind of funk groove going. And she got up there, and man, I mean, it was like there was a line about albinos and wheelchairs on the dance floor, and I mean, she started flowing, and it was insane. And we were like, wow. And then we we, we stopped playing, and it, you know, everybody's just kind of hanging out. And Kenny Withrow, our soon-to-be guitar player, was in the audience, and he came up to me. His eyes were as big as saucers. He goes, dude, you must get her in your band. If you don't, I'm going to start one with her. <laughs> and he was tripping, man. And that really, I mean, I, I knew it was good and it was kind of cool with Edie, but I was just like, okay, cool, jam, whatever. And it was him coming up to me and I went, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, because he's kind of reticent, reticent kind of dude, not super impressed, not demonstrative. You yeah. Know? 
no offense, Kenny, but uh, <laughs> and he was tripping the f out, you know, right? Yeah, and so yeah. that really was a big signal to me. And so we ended up, yeah, Edie come play, and we and we were kind of running out of gas with Eric as our singer. And we were kind of starting to know we needed we needed something more. You know, he was a decent singer, but we need, we really needed. And she showed up, and we started writing with her, and uh, came up with, a, with this one tune called "Whatever," real classic early song. Another tune called "Mesopotamia," another tune called "Cleopatra." Some real classic early stuff came out of that initial writing with Eric. And then, um, I don't know, it's all open to dialogue about drugs these days, but this was, by then it was the spring 85. Spring 85 in Dallas, Texas was, a, the soul of Dallas was almost saved during those times because ecstasy was legal and it yeah. really peaked in the spring of 85. It got to the point where bars weren't selling booze. You would buy X from the doorman and yeah. go in, and everybody's drinking water. Yeah, you know, and uh, <laughs> and um, and it was really weird. I, there was like a real a lot of people were just party on it, and some people were having spiritual awakenings, right. you know, or at right. least we thought we were. And uh, and, uh, and some of us had kind of you know had had had, had taken the leap, and uh, and that's that was kind of. Yeah, that's some of the Matrix. Our first record that that is the, the those times are really in the sound of that record and those songs. That songwriting, yeah, really is. Yeah, doubt, but they they estimated that at its peak, thirty thousand hits a day were being consumed in Dallas. That's Jesus, probably, dude, it was amazing. Like uh, you could feel it one night. I dosed, and we were at this park. Just ended up in the park, you know. <laughs> that happens, and. Uh, I mean, this girl, this, this this girl that I know, we weren't even dating. We just ended up, you know, hanging out that night and just talking. And we were over here in one part of the park, and all of a sudden, I hear all these people show up, and it's all a bunch of my childhood friends, guys I've known forever, and they were, you know, they were and we were all there in the park <laughs> on the swings. And I remember looking up at the sky, and all of a sudden, I felt all these people all over the city who were in the same state as I was. Wow. Clear as a bell. You could just yeah, feel it. Yeah. Wow, we're all here. Yeah. Those those times were real magical and it's really part of our matrix, you know. I mean, drugs and music have a yeah. long history. And I I was I was sixteen in the summer of eighty five and I mm -hmm. lived here. I remember the last night of X. Like I that's the night I remember the most. Right. <laughs> Oddly enough. Yeah, because on July first and it was and it was really and that this was all happening in the spring, you know. So it was really the lead up, and yeah, it was clean too. The stuff we were getting, at least. I mean, I only did it a handful of times, but it was clean. It wasn't that crap that's out there now. God's yeah. Russian roulette now, but you know, clean pure MDMA. You know, yeah, we all know, or some of us know. And uh, so, let me ask you a quick, just a quick, was was Edie? What was what, what was her trajectory when she was coming in and just sitting? In, like, yes. What was, what was her? View? Well, she was an art major. She's okay. an accomplished uh, painter and visual artist, you okay. know, and that's her artwork on the first um, yeah, record, yeah. you yeah. know. And she's a quite accomplished visual artist. Heart. And anyway, so uh, she was in the art cluster, and she had a, she and the drummer Brandon had a mutual friend, and so that's how she ended up at our gig. Okay. But uh, she had been singing and writing songs all of her life. I mean, there's tapes of her at ten years old with a guitar. And her friend Andrea, and they're making up songs. I heard them. You know, it's, it's good. Okay, you can hear it. It's there. Yeah, you know. And and her mom, she grew up with a single mom, and she heard a lot of Motown growing up. Oh yeah, and that's that's at her root. Motown and soul is at her root. She's a really a soul singer first. Yeah, and uh, and it was interesting how because that that spring of '85 kind of try to wrap all that up, but this is yeah, kind of the sorry. real key event. Uh, 
It was like, one well, was probably April or May, and it was around Friday, and I mean, me and Brandon were really itching to jam, and uh, Eric, our guitar player, had an accounting gig by that time, was doing really well at it, and he had a new girlfriend, you know, and they were dating, and he was like, it was like Friday night, and he was tired, he said, man, I'm just going to stay home and cook out and hang out, you know, I'm just, and yeah, like, cool, man, and, you know, I knew Kenny wanted to jam with us, and I was like, shit, man, let's just call up Kenny, see if he wants to come play with us, and we got, I went and picked up Kenny, still no car, and uh, and brought him back, and Edie came over, and Brandon showed up in my dad's garage, and we started playing. And Edie recorded it on her Walkman, cassette Walkman, and we played for pretty much till the tape ran out, about 45 minutes an hour. And it was just seamless start to finish. We start and really didn't stop until... And then we went out to the patio, and it was just starting to get dark. And we start listening to it, and my hair starts standing up. That tune, Shooting Rubber Bands at the Stars, was came out of that. We've never wow. released that. And the, that tune, Nothing, on the first record yeah. was written during that wow. jam. Pretty much as you hear it on the record, that that's the song. It just came out. Kenny just started playing those chords, and Edie started singing. Because she'd been playing around, hey, I, want to, I want to write a song about nothing, and I want to play with the word nothing. And then that song came out of it. But what happened was, so we're sitting there on the patio listening to the you know, 45 minutes that we had just jammed on. And as we're listening, I'm just starting to trip out. And like, and I remember looking up the sky again and the stars kind of like chimed and I went, "Uh uh-oh, we got to get Kenny in the band and we're going to be huge. And I just fucking knew. I mean, I knew. I knew we were going to be hit. When I heard nothing and heard shooting rubber bands at the stars and just the flow, and then there was this other jam in F sharp and six that we came up with that we still play sometimes and it was just magic and like you know and i was like and we ended up and i I looked at them and i said look man kenny we're gonna have to get you in the band we gotta you know we're gonna have to get rid of eric sorry and it sucked because i'd known eric for a while you know i mean i hated it and they were going maybe we should just start a new band and name it something else and i was going nah it's gonna it has to be new bohemians we got to make the switch we can't do two bands and uh and so yeah within two or three days we were calling eric up and breaking the horrible news you know and we 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 all stayed friends but he was he was a little bummed but he was on an accounting trajectory and later became a millionaire actually that's uh, good yeah he's done really well and uh still plays sometimes and uh but it was it was yeah it was really weird and that was in the same garage that my dad's garage in north dallas that we ended up writing most of the first record in that's so awesome it, I, it was really weird, but I'll never forget sitting there and listening to that first tape of the four of us playing for the first time. And I just knew. I mean, it was like that goosebumps and the whole bit. Yeah. It really hits. I just knew. Yeah. You know? So then you guys just hit the ground. When did you start playing Dada? Like 86 Dada, or something? Yeah, late in 86, <clears throat> Dada opened up. Pretty much as soon as they okay. opened up, they had us in there because we already knew some of those guys. And everybody was, was Beard really, there then? Huh? Beard? Beard was there pretty early on. Uh, yeah. He might have come in after the first few months, but yeah, you, yeah. yeah, Beard, man, <laughs> yeah. classic, <laughs> classic dude. I spent a lot of. I mean, and there's no time I would go. I'm, I haven't been back. Well, I was there the other day, but I haven't played in Deep Elm in a while, right? In years, but I'd always go by and say hi to him. Such a nice guy, man. It's such a ritual to you know I just stand there with him at the front yeah. door, just kind yeah. of rap for a while, yeah. just talk about whatever. Yeah. He, was, he got into collecting guitars, and so. He would tell me about guitars he was tripping on and stuff, and he had a he got. I remember he gave me a bass neck too. He had this fretless bass neck laying around. I still have it. Really? That's right. Yeah, he gave me a. Yep. 
He just had a Schecter neck laying around. So was that the only, was that really the only club down there at the time? Well, Dada, Dada was sort of second wave of Deep Ellum. Early on, it was Theater Gallery and 500 Cafe. I remember 500 Cafe. Yeah, and Theater Gallery was Jeff Lyles and Russell Hobbs. You know, Jeff Lyles uh-huh. from the Kessler. Well, see, oh, Jeff okay. Lyles is the father of Deep Ellum. He's the true okay. father of Deep Ellum. He ran Theater Gallery, and Theater Gallery was what made Deep Ellum happen. You know, that, that there was that Red Hot Chili Peppers show, Fall of 85, that was packed. You know, that that that, that was life-changing for me. Flea scared me to death. Uh, Jane's Addiction played a real key show there in 86. Late, late 86, it was sold out. Husker Du played there a couple of times. Wow. And it was these real packed-out shows, and it was all underground. You know, they barely even had ads in the paper. And uh, But that was all Jeff Lyles. And uh, he's the real father of Deep Element. He runs the Kessler in Oak Cliff now, yeah. you know. And he's, he's become a real... He's a real curator of Dallas music. I mean, the Dallas music scene is heavily turned in certain directions because of his influence, you know. And well, there was there was an explosion that I, I, I'm referring to a Texas Monthly article, you know what I'm talking yes. about? Like that came out in 88 or 89 or something. I know Deep Elm was old news by then. Oh, uh, was? Yeah. Okay, okay. It really, well, it was funny too because... We started playing theater gallery. We did our first gig on summer '85. You know, just to theater gallery was a warehouse about uh, with a tall ceiling, and it was just total punk rock. And uh, about about as a little bit bigger than the, the present day Antones. And uh, they had a stage, and they ended up with a pretty decent PA. It could get louder and shit in there. And uh, I remember it was so loud, one of the horns fell off the PA stack one night. But uh, and that's where it all started happening. And we started playing there. And it's like, it, it, what kind of, we, we got signed to Geffen at the end of 86. Okay. And at that point, North Dallas and SMU discovered us. Okay. Up until that point, we were like the nerds and the, 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 the outliers outcast, band. Yeah. And then, you know, but we, had, we always were writing pop songs, you know, so yeah. we were always in danger. And uh, <laughs> and then SMU and some of the fraternity folks and sorority started discovering, and they started showing up in Deep Ellum. And it was, you know, Deep Ellum, it's like our popularity and Deep Ellum kind of rose right. at the same time. You're kind of like... Muhammad Ali and uh, and and Howard Cosell. Oh shit! Like you made each other. Howard Cosell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, we used to love making fun of him. And uh, sorry, so you guys were coming up at the same time. It, yeah. And it was, and it really, a lot of people were pissed too because it was a lot of like North Dallas frat types were starting to show up and party down there, you know. So right. they were kind of ruining the neighborhood to a lot of people. So I mean, and a lot of people, you know, we weren't really punk rock, you know. We were like kids who had played some jazz tunes and we were kind of on the other side of shit in Deep Element were even kind of outsiders because most of the other bands were definitely in more of like a punk rock garage rock kind of thing you know right. and and eventually we all became friends and just would all drink together and have a blast and all the because it was really was a community and and uh there was just nothing else to do in Dallas at the time. So the, you know, the golden age all through late 85, 86, when it was, it was, you would go down, we were there, I would be down there almost every night because it was the neighborhood, Yeah, you know? And, and by that time, profit bar across from the theater gallery on El, on commerce street was going. So that was a little nexus. And then late in 86, Dada opened up 
one block over. (laughs) And Clearview had moved to that same area. And so in short order, there was like five bars in this 100-yard radius almost that were real key music joints. And and that was real ground zero. And then uh, Clearview started having some really key shows. God, I saw Fishbone there in 88. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. God. Wow. Yeah. Few bands will ever have that kind of energy. I danced so hard and I wasn't smoking cigarettes yet. So I got, I just got, <laughs> I got deathly ill next. I danced so hard for like two hours in cigarette smoke. I'll never forget it the next day. I was just like so sick. Oh, yeah. It's hilarious. Of course, they ended up smoking later, but, uh, <laughs> and then quitting. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it was just, it was, yeah, it was. It really was magical. Truly, it was, it's, the legends are all kind of true. Yeah, what bands like there was Tin Hands. Yeah, Tin Hands was, was kind of an outlier uh, like us. They were more like jazz weirdos, you know. And, and the core of the Deep Ellum scene was definitely like Shallow Rain, Three on a Hill. I remember Three on a Hill. Yeah, yeah, and they were they were like rock bands, you yeah. know. And uh, was MC Nine Hundred Foot Jesus at that time? He yeah he came he came out of that matrix. We all knew him, Mark Griffin. You know yeah. he was. Uh, was Earl playing with him then? Or Earl played with him a little later. Okay. And then Earl Earl had a because when Chamberlain joined the New Bohemians in spring of '88, Earl Harvin came in and took his place in Ten Hands. Okay, right. And that was a real big deal at the time. Everyone yeah. was, oh my God, Chamberlain quit Hands. Oh my God, you know some people were pissed because he jumped ship on Ten Hands and joined us, and that was super contentious. And then. And I remember going to Earl's first gig with Tin Hands down at Deep Ellum Live, you know, and it was super anticipated. Everybody's tripping it. Oh my God, Earl Irwin's playing with Tin Hands, and yeah. everybody was there to check it out. Yeah, it's really funny. God, it's just so funny how much drama was in everything back then. I love being young because of that stuff. There was so much drama. It's Every so single awesome. thing was just fraught <laughs> yeah, with drama. It's the end oh of the God, world. Drama yeah. here, drama there, and like. What do you mean we're starting ten minutes late? It's the end of the world. Yeah, it's everything absolutely. is the end of the world with yeah. fire. And I, <laughs> that's crazy. So when you guys when you guys went to do your record, you did it. How did you? First of all, how did how did Geffen find you? Did you guys have a manager or something, or what? What the hell? We um. So it wasn't like Geffen reps hanging out in Dallas all the time, was nah, it? No, there was this girl named Kim Bowie, who was at MCA at the time, and she just found Deep Ellum and started showing up. Oh, okay. And she tried to sign us to MCA. And they didn't think we were commercial enough. It's awesome. I love that. And uh, and then um, she gave our tape to Tom Zutat and Teresa Hansen okay. at Geffen because she knew them. And and Tom couldn't get to Dallas fast enough. Wow. You know, could, well, I think as soon as he heard Edie's voice, it was over. I mean, I think he intended. I think he wanted to. In an ideal world, wanted to sign her and give us the boot for sure. And, you know, making the first record was very stressful. We were trying to enter, you know, a, a pretty ragtag, ragtag jam band with pop songs entering a very mechanized recording machine. Yeah. And really, you know, it was very, the whole thing with the record company was very stressful in many ways. And I, I, and I came to this wonderful summation of it a couple of years ago. What I realized was that what, what Geffen wanted in 1987, 88, we did that record. What they wanted was essentially a Don Henley record with Edie singing. Exactly. And with a couple more quirky bits. 
And that's what they really were looking for. And meanwhile, you know, we're like this ragtag jam band with pop songs and we're looser than hell, you know. I mean, yeah. we never played to a click, you know what I mean? And we were, you know, kind of <laughs> all over the place as far as precision went. And so... It and it's the a, 80s, it was a, too, where they it were was placing a real drums and fucking... Yeah. yeah, Jesus. Yeah, we played the clicks and all this stuff and, you know, everybody did. But it was like... And so, in the record, you know, came... Can't, you know, when the record finally, when we got the mastered copy back after it was all said and done, we were horrified because there was so much sparkle and sheen on it. It was all these keyboards everywhere. We didn't even have a keyboard player at the time. And, <laughs> and we were horrified. But I don't mean to laugh. It just. Right. It's the, the business. It was be more so drama. Cruel. You know, we were just yeah. so traumatized because our sound had been messed with. And, uh, and it all worked out fine. And, and that record sounds good to me now. But, uh, we were just so traumatized by the whole thing. How did you? I mean, what were? <laughs> how did you guys handle it as a as a group? Was it difficult? Did you splinter? Or well, did there you was, come there together was to almost, take some, on almost the world? splintering. Yeah, we almost broke up. It, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was very stressful on all of us, and we had no real coping skills. No, and, uh, I don't think anybody had ever seen a therapist at that point. And uh, and we ended up through a lot of record company pressure that's how Chamberlain came in they just really leaned on us pretty hard we ended up getting Chamberlain to come in on drum kit and uh, he was the drummer from spring 88 through spring of 91 on our last like big tour right at which point the band dissolved Edie moved to New York and started a family with Paul yeah and uh, has three kids who are now in college and we're ready to hit the road hit again. the road again yeah <laughs> well it's funny there's a thing there's a quote from her on the website that says nobody can do what they do and that's the truth there's like it must be pretty amazing now having gone through all that stuff having gone through so much personal shit to look over at these people that you used to be a kid with you know and be like wow we're still here we're still we still do this thing it gets weird as heck especially now you know i mean at this age, no. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's you know, Crushem, Kyle Crushem, our fifth Beatle producer, who you know, who with our we did with our new thing, and you know, you and him playing Skyrocket, yeah, and yeah. uh, having his perspective has been awesome because you know, he's our neutral observer who comes in, you know, and but he's repeatedly pointing out, he goes, Man, you guys are a band, yeah, you sound like a band, you act like a band. And and he made me see how valuable that is. Yeah. Because he pointed out, dude, that's that's priceless. That's something that you guys have that really is so special, and you may not even realize how special it is. Yeah. And that's been really good. And he did make me see it with new eyes. Yeah. Because I'm just good. like, oh yeah, it's Brandon and Kenny and John and Edie and you know, and just like, and we all are, like, you know. But he he, I mean, I know when he first started working with you guys, and I know that he had done stuff with her before. But he's like, man, they they just come in. It's what they do. Like, it's like the group of people that's meant to be together. Like, as soon as you guys are together, this thing happens. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know that, what I mean? It's new Bohemians. When it's go. good, it gets bigger than us. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're like jamming and trying to write something and when it when it doesn't click and it's a clunker, oh my God. It's like, you'll like for a second, wow, we really suck. Boy, that sounded like shit. You know, we'll have something that just clunks out, doesn't hit like an improv or something. Yeah. You know, because we do, some of our tunes come out of improv, improv jams and like, and when it clunks, you'll just go, God, yeah, we suck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it, I, you know, 
You know, and some people who don't, you know, go, oh, that's terrible. Why do you think that about your music? Well, no, nah, man, it's going to always be that way. You're going to always, you know, anytime there's a clunker, you go, God, yeah, we suck. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing is the band, that's the, that's the spirit of the band is to just go for it. Just go for it. Yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes and, it's a clunker. Sometimes it's, it's what I am. It's harder for me to go for it now, man. I'm, it's is really, it? well, I'm older and it's, you know, I've learned to be conservative as a bass player and I was reckless back then, you know when I was 28, 26, 25, reckless, you know, and, uh, and so now that I'm, you know, still learning to be a proper bass player, it's, you know, and that, that go for it thing, you know, where you just really just quit thinking, quit analyzing, quit trying to be proper, quit trying anything and just freaking go and play. It's, it's still there, but it's more challenging because, because of just being older and, being less inclined to take risks, especially as a bass player, you know, yeah, a good bass player doesn't take a lot of risks. There's a time for that, but most of the time, no, yeah, you know, and so, oh, it's good. It's there's good a to... there's a great quote. There's a great <laughs> quote uh, in a in a in a video where you're demoing cables, uh, where you talk about how you were really into Jacko when you were younger. Now you're more into James Jamerson. Sort of like you slowed your roll. You were known for being a faster. Oh god, player. you know, and even now, Jamerson even sounds too busy most of the time. <laughs> but it's like, you know, and now I hear some of those. You know, listen to any really good old country recording. Yeah. You know, you hear how. You know, in the bass, those notes, must like Roy Husky and all those guys. Those bass notes are like great architecture. Yeah. You're looking at architectural support columns that are very well designed, you know. And yeah. once I started seeing the bass that way, it's like, it's like, okay, now I'm starting to understand, you know. Yeah. You know, Chuck went to one of Victor Wooten's bass camp a few like ten years ago, and Chuck Rainey was there, right? And as fancy as he's gotten on with Steely Dan and everything, and as intricate as his things are, he just at one point looked at the group and he said, "I really consider bass bass to be." primarily a root fifth rhythm instrument yeah and if you don't if you aren't really willing to look at it that way you might want to choose another instrument and he was like mr grace and mr nice every other time the whole weekend that was the only time i ever heard him get hard and when he said that you know as soon as he said when he said i consider it to be primarily a root fifth rhythm instrument i had this like mental flash of like a greek temple with like Greek columns and that my root fifth bass notes are these columns. There's architectural support columns that the music can build itself around. And I'll never forget hearing him say that. And it really was a fundamental like sea change in the way I saw the bass, like going very back, back to the basics, but in a whole new way with a whole new awareness, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, that camp cost me 800 bucks to go to and I could have spent 8,000 and it would have been worth it, you know, even just to hear that. Because there's so many times, I mean, almost daily, that awareness that he brought in that moment will come back to me so often on gigs when I'm playing, you got root fifth rhythm instrument. And like embracing that role. Whereas in my 20s, I saw it as dumb. Oh, root fifth, that's stupid. That's those clunky old guys that are boring and now it's like, no, that's architectural support upon which beautiful things are built yeah you know and if that support's not there worst thing in the world is to go hear a band that the bass player is not doing his job and 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 you know it's the worst yeah. thing in the world 
you know? And yeah. it's like, and I've been that guy and I can name you gigs that I've been that guy. I remember, you know, and it's <laughs> yeah. embarrassing, you know, now it is. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's kind of wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's man learning stuff. I, it's weird because rock, uh, like rock and roll, but like the, the world of, of, of entertainment is geared so much more towards the young, but you see guys that you've seen for years, David, oh my God. someone like Susanna. Yeah. someone like you, any, Edie, you know what I mean? Look all these people, you've seen them do their thing the whole time, you're like, fuck, they're a hundred times better now. Yeah. But it's so much harder to get noticed because oh, you're not fresh and shiny anymore, you know what I mean? You're, if we were a new unknown band, even sounding like we do with Edie fronting us, Scott, can you imagine trying to go out like as a new band? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean... That would be weird. So, wait a minute, so you guys put out Shooting Rubber Bands at the Stars, it's a thing. You guys go on Saturday Night Live. You're doing tours and all that stuff. How long did you tour? We did, yeah, we did big. The record label bus tour cycle went from fall of 88, and then we did a big one in spring of 89. Did three weeks with Bob Dylan in June of 89. Right when Tony Garnier joined the band, actually. Their bass player, I saw his first gig. He's still with Bob. And he is the now Tony Garnier, formerly of Austin and Asleep at the Wheel there, oh, Bob's wow. bass player. He's been playing with Bob longer continuously than any other musician in history. Tony Garnier, the wow. bass player. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, Tony. I know. It's awesome. And I saw his first gig. G. Smith was leading the band and Bob was standing very still like a corpse singing and not sounding a lot great. Yeah. It was not he a did that late eighties, early nineties where he was like a guy like a comedian imitating Bob Dylan at shows. Said, I've said that before. You have? Because that's what I, I felt like when I saw him then. I was like... And, and he sounded like a Bob Dylan imitator. Yeah. And uh, it was I funny I feel like too. he was doing that though. Like, here you go. He, there's he, always like such a fuck you to everything he does <sighs> in my mind. Like, I'm always like, yeah, <laughs> he doesn't seem like a nice man. I know. I, I love what he does. I think he was in a not great period in life because the funny thing was, Edie took Kenny and I to Madison Square Garden, I think summer of 2000. It was when Paul... And Bob were doing that. Oh yeah, yeah. That tour. I know what you're talking about. And so we went and saw the show. And Charlie Charlie Sexton was in the band, you know. And by then, well, by then, okay, '89, Bob Dylan standing like a corpse on yeah. stage, strumming acoustic guitar, mumbling. Right. Fast forward 11 years later, Bob Dylan with a Telecaster on stage, acting 10 years younger yeah, than, than he 10 was. years yeah, previous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now, not only that, he's a ball hog, and he's doing all the guitar solos. Yeah. And he's like charging it. He's got a Telecaster. He's playing these aggressive lead guitar. It was hilarious. He was super animated. He's moving around on stage. He would like, his eyes would flare on certain yeah. words. And it was like, I couldn't believe that shit. Yeah. It blew my mind. Because he, dude, he was all but dead in 89. Yeah. It was not good. Yeah. And I mean, he's one of my heroes now yeah, for that. I mean, seriously, it, I, that's one of the, that's blown my mind. That's one of the few things in my musical life have blown my mind as much as that did. Yeah, seeing Bob resurrect like that—that's that, a faith-giving moment for sure. <laughs> yeah. So the, the thing that I want to get at is then how did, how hard was it to come up with the with the ghost of a dog? Like how how like what was going on? It seems like that would have been that would have been a tough. We Hurdle. went into it, yeah. We, you know, we went into it. Great Guns. We had a handful of tunes, and we got those recorded. And there was no single. 
and and it would and we ended up because we were tracked it in Bearsville, Woodstock, New York. And that was a blast. And then we went to L.A. to Tony Berg's place to finish oh, up cool. and do overdubs. And at that point, the record company, I mean, I think it was very apparent there was no single. And I mean, we even, I remember one night we went to this rehearsal studio somewhere in L.A. for a writing session. We were trying to write. That was one of the worst nights of our life. We were so, it was so not flowing. It was the We anti- have to write a hit. It was the anti-flow. <laughs> yeah. It was the anti-flow. I'll, I'll never forget it. I remember the way my body felt that night. I can still remember it and the way the light looked in the room. It was so funny. So sad core. And, uh, <laughs> But we had this tune, Mama Help Me, that we kind of was a B, on the B list, and we ended up re-recording that because we'd tracked it at Bearsville. And then we ended up going back into the Village Recorder in L.A. and retracted it, and they've got a pretty good version of it, and they released that as a single. You know, it's just kind of a blues rocker. and uh, That's the one with that badass drum fill coming into it? Yeah. There's a good drum fill. Yeah. And a really good video that came out of it, but it was like, you know, it was not a what I am for sure. Right. And, uh, you know, it's the classic thing, you know, you've got your whole, whole life to write your first record and then, right? you yeah. know, about nine months for the second one, you know, that, so. that first one was a hit. It's almost like the pressure. It's almost like a worst. <laughs> it is. It's almost like worse than not having a hit. It's, it's better to have a hit later if you can, if you even can control something like <laughs> yeah. that, but, you I, know, and the, the irony, the irony was, was, uh, first record at the time sold about a million and a half. And then really? Ghost of a Dog comes out. I think it might have hit two million by now. It never really sold, you know, crazy amounts. That's but uh, just... Ghost of a Dog came out and stalled right below five hundred thousand. I think it eventually hit five hundred way late in the game, but it was considered a flop. Now that would be like think a about selling four hundred yeah. Right, I know you'd be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, man. Like you know, I mean, and so uh, front page cover. <laughs> And so, um, but that, that was, it's just, it's all, you know, it's all about how you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you guys a couple of times around that time. I saw, I think you were there, but I saw Billy Goat, I want to say in 1990. Yeah, man. And we're at Fitzgerald's and Zelda's downstairs. Oh, dude, yeah, that, that would have. Chamberlain was probably on drum kit. He was on drum kit. Yeah, he was Ken, on drum kit Kenny because was, I met him. Kenny was playing guitar. I think I was at that gig, and I think I took a Southwest airline flight down to Houston to get to that gig because I had some conflict earlier in the day because I was playing horn with them for a minute. And uh, yeah, because Billy Goat started right at the end of '89. We we were off tour. Right, did and he got he got Chamberlain to play drums and Kenny was on guitar, yeah. and I played sax, and uh, that guy Big Al, the drummer I told you about, was on clavinet by then in the early Billy Goat. Brandon Smith on bass, and I remember there was this it was like our second or third gig, man. This one tune was kind of fast James Brown kind of thing, and Chamberlain was Chamberlain was on Kent. Big Al, who's a crushing drummer, was on clav. Right. Brandon, badass bass player, Kenny on guitar. And that was one of the most wicked grooves I have ever heard in my entire life that wow. night. Because you got a wicked drummer on clav, killing yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. Badass bass, Chamberlain on kit, Kenny on guitar. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I've ever, ever heard a groove that killer ever since, actually. It was like, it was that early Billy Goat. And people who saw those shows would just come out like... Oh, know, it was awesome. I know, like... 
It was awesome. This is Mike still had his clothes on during the oh, I know. clothes yeah, on the yeah. whole show. Oh yeah. I, I'll... <laughs> Dude. When when John Bush was on here, I was like, I've seen Mike Dillon's nuts way more than I've seen any of my other friends that I've grown up with or known through music. Like I've seen his his oh genitals. I Way played more with than Mike's band. We, he had this Harry Apes BMX band. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I, we we were playing up in Colorado, like probably around '02 or so, at this ski bar, you know, and like playing. You know, it's like a Wednesday night. It's toward the end of the night, and somebody and and somebody yells, "Hey, Mike, play a play a, a play a solo with your dick." <laughs> and so he whips it out and he's like whacking the cop. He's, I, I, I'm standing behind him so I can't see it. I just see his back, right? And so he's, he's playing and all of a sudden I hear him go, ow! Well, what he did was he turned and hit the timbali with his cock and the timbali's got a rim. Yeah. And so oh. the rim, and so that's when I heard him go, ow! And, you know, so he stopped and put it back in. We're all just laughing. But, yeah, you know, somebody challenged him, and he just like, okay, fine. I'll play a percussion solo with my, uh, yeah. you know. Well, and- I, remember, <laughs> I remember seeing that show that night at Zelda's and talking to Mike, and Mike was, he was wasted. I don't know if he was tripping or what, but then he, because uh, I knew him from Ten Hands. I was in a band there that opened for Ten Hands yep. a lot. And then... Uh, and then he introduced me to Kenny and I started talking to Kenny. So flash forward like an hour and a half, I get home, I put on the TV, I put on MTV and I recognized Kenny's face the most. I was like, holy, wait, well, these guys, you were doing, uh, that Dylan song from Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, hard Rain. We all, yeah. We were all standing there. I was like, I just met that dude. I met that dude. What? <laughs> wow. The MTV guys were just as Zelda's with Crazy Mike. <laughs> right. Like that's insane. <laughs> That had to, that would be yeah that's funny yeah wow <laughs> what a great uh, there was another band from up there that I keep on drawing a blank on it's driving me nuts they kind of sounded like um, uh, you remember George Reeves band from up there Big Loud Dog that might have been more like late 80s. I remember hearing about 90s. Big Loud Dog. Yeah. Okay, that was him. Wow, cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's when I met him when he was in that band. Oh, man. But there was a lot of great bands from up there. There was one band I keep on trying. Oh. They kind of sounded like Exile on Main Street. Oh, whoa. Huh. Like there was a band that just sounded like that album, at least to me back then. Then it really kind of took off. I mean, there was all those bands like Goodfoot and, I mean, a lot of those. Ten Hands is back. Have you seen those? I mean, are you friends with those guys? Yeah, well, they're they're doing uh, sporadic reunions kind of on an ongoing basis. So they do about three, four gigs a year. Seems like. Wow, that's a that was I saw that band so many times. Yeah, they were huge for me. Um, Pancho Villa was a very yeah, good friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, all those yeah, all those songs. <laughs> it's funny when when. Uh, <laughs> A few years ago, like maybe five years ago, a friend of mine like sent me. He's like, "Dude, it's all on SoundCloud." I was like, "I hadn't listened to it in years." I was listening to the big one is coming. I was like, "The big one is coming." Out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was so good. So, man, when did you when did you get when did you start Critters Buggin? That was the next thing you did after Bohemians. Yeah, that was I kind of followed Chamberlain around. He, he that's a good guy to follow around. Yeah, that was he. He got the Saturday Night Live gig. 90, yeah, the ninety one ninety two season, and he ended up. In Woodstock, 
because he knew, you know, we had recorded there, and so he knew about Woodstock. He couldn't find a place to live in the city where he could play drums, and so he ended up getting a place in Woodstock. And me and my wife at the time, and Wes Martin and his wife, kind of all moved up there because Matt and Wes and I had started a trio that ended up being called Three Pound Universe. And, uh, and Wes was a good singer-songwriter himself, and he was a rhythm guitarist on all the touring 89 through 91. Oh, okay. Another old friend from Dallas. God, was like a lot of intellect at locking circles. And uh, Wes later ended up in a band with River Phoenix in oh, okay. uh, Gainesville, Florida. This band called Alka's Attic. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and Wes ended up playing bass with him, with River. And River was a really good musician, really yeah. good singer, good guitar player. That's what I heard. I actually saw that band in Florida one night. We were on tour and we ran into them. I actually got drunk with River Phoenix. <laughs> he was hilarious. Yeah. Really funny and really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It totally. seems like. He was. He was cool as shit. Um, and so, uh, what thread, what thread am I trying to get back to? Um, Critters Buggin'. Yeah, Critters Buggin'. And so, uh, sorry, now, Chamberlain did that for a whole year and just kind of got burn out, burn on it. Could have kept on doing it, but just was ready. And he ended up, had, he had become friends with Stone Gossard because he, he played on Pearl Jam's right. first video. That and a live did, video. Yeah. And he did a, a van tour with them. Oh, like really? a van tour for like 30 people at small clubs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, right before they hit. And uh, and they asked him to join the band, and he decided not to. And this was actually before, because he... Tony Berg, the producer of Ghost of a Dog, knew that Pearl Jam was looking for a drummer and told him about Matt. And this was in summer of 91. We were back in Dallas kind of regrouping from the Bohemians breakup and he ended up going to Seattle played with them did the Alive video did a van tour with them and then came back to Dallas and they ended up and, he, and they asked him to join the band and he decided not to and that and he went to Saturday Night Live and did that whole season and right. so at the end of that season by the end of that season Seattle was all over the national news <laughs> and uh he decided to move out there because Stone said, "Hey, if you get out here, you know, I, I uh, we can get a band together. I'll record you." Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, he moved out there and was had been out there a few months and was really digging it. And I was just kind of languishing in Woodstock and uh, couldn't really get anything going in the city. It was just kind of, I don't know, nothing much going on. So I decided to move to Seattle. Unfortunately, split up with my wife at the time amicably but i went to seattle and we met skerrick straight away or he'd already met skerrick and i just just moved in with matt we were housemates and he said let's get scared to come over the last thing i wanted to do was play with a tenor player it was kind of ironic i was very over it (laughs) and uh and he shows up and we start playing and it just explodes i mean it just blew up skerrick's just got all the energy in the world and it just went crazy and so next thing you know we kind of got a band going with this guy and uh we booked a gig at the okay hotel decided to call it critters bugging and gig day comes and next thing you know, Skerrick's violently ill, can't even make the gig, and so we got Skerrick's guitar buddy Leif to come play with us. And so the first Critters Buggin' gig, Skerrick wasn't even on. Oh, that's and uh, but then I don't know, people liked it, and the next thing you know, we started getting gigs. Yeah, and we barely even had any tunes. Yeah, and our tunes were like these, just very rudimentary, like 
Well, it was kind of funny, boy. We 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 made something out of nothing because we didn't even have any songs. It was just, there was no material. We just kind of get up there and go. And uh, it's funny when I was listening to it today, I was like, man, why wasn't why don't why didn't someone hire these dudes to do like soundtracks? Well, that brings up some very interesting. Uh, what happened was Stone got a budget, started his Loose Groove label, and brought in Dennis Herring, and we. He built a 24-track studio, and he had a pretty big basement in his house in Ravenna, district of Seattle. And so he just basically brought Chamberlain in, and it initially started as a Matt recording project. Hey, Matt, just bring in some stuff and start jamming, or we'll record you and make a Matt record. Right. Well, it quickly turned into a Critters thing, and Dennis Herring had a very early Pro Tools rig. The first version was called Sound Tools, and... We, we we recorded, well, there was like this one 20-minute jam we recorded, and like Dennis Herring like made a song out of it, but it ended up being this tune, Critters Theme, on the first record. And uh, that first record was like a true Pro Tools creation, you know, and it yeah. really it ended up sounding really good. Well, what happened was, that was 93, you know, we played all through the 90s, did a couple of small tours, kind of played here and there. And then I started working with Reverend Guitars and we started working on a design for a bass. Well, I started going to the NAMM shows in LA Mm -hmm. and I would walk around the NAMM show and definitely by 2000 or 01, it was got really weird. All these producers and engineers and manufacturers reps, fairly famous musicians in a few cases started going, Oh, you were in Critters Buggin? Whoa. Oh my God. And they would be tripping out. And I was just going, wow, we were just a bunch of weirdos from Seattle. Yeah, we recorded yeah. some records, fine, whatever. And we were real jaded to our own sound. But all these other people started coming up to me, going, freaking out, going, oh, my yeah, God, yeah. Critter's bugging. And uh, I've started hearing our influence in commercials. Uh, I mean, I've That's heard interesting. our influence. It's weird. Uh, yeah, I was a, I was in a band with a drummer that just was like, yeah, there was, there was at least a good five months where that was all he talked mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was weird as shit. And um, I remember Robert Fripp in like 99 or so up in Seattle, he was trying to get this thing going. They were going to do live streaming video casts of concerts. Mm-hmm. It was way ahead of its time. And uh, he they convened this big meeting like at this club like one day in the afternoon. Hey, let's, this is this cool project we're doing. They invited us and a bunch of musicians. And, and I got to meet Robert Fripp. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I was a huge King Crimson head, discipline, beat, all that shit, right? All of us were. And... Uh, I think Pat Massalotto or Michael Shreve goes, hey, Brad, this, uh, Robert, this is Brad Hauser from Critters Buggin'. And Fripp's eyes got big, and he goes, Critters Buggin'? We love <laughs> Critters Buggin'. And I just shit. So, Robert wow. Fripp. That is awesome. Whoa. I just, I couldn't deal. You know, I was like, man, you know, this guy, he masterminded some of the most influential game changer music in my existence, and he's telling me he likes my band. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. I mean, that was freaking my shit out. It still does. I can't even believe it. This is weird. And um, and so, yeah, we, we kind of, we, we, we made a dent in the underground. Yeah. You know, and... and uh, musicians, musicians. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and it's just, I'm, I'm very happy about it. You know, it's just so amazing. And that was a fun band. That was, yeah. It was, I mean, when it was on, God, I remember one night we played, we got... Scarec News promoter in Tokyo. So we went over and played in Tokyo. Like summer of 2000, played this like rave. 
Except it was a rave full of tie-dyed wearing Japanese hippies who were all into fish. Dude, there's a whole jam band scene over there. It's hilarious. They're all wear show up wearing tie-dyes and shit. You would not believe it. It blew my mind. That's hilarious. And uh, yeah, we played this like rave critters and we started at midnight and we were supposed to do like three sets. And uh, and we started, we never stopped. And I actually wore a watch at the time. And I remember and we played for at least three hours straight. And I remember looking at my watch two different times, thinking like 10 minutes had gone by and two different times an hour had gone by. It blew wow. my fucking mind. I was like, whoa, an hour? How'd that happen? Wow. And I remember that this guy, I, for that band, The Boredoms, that Japanese noise band, The Boredoms, this guy, I, he calls himself, he got up, he's their, he's their vocalist. About midway through, he got on a mic, he got on a mic over by Skerrick and sat in with us like for about an hour. And the first thing he did was like, ah! He started doing bird calls, and he and Skerrick started going, and then we started going behind him. That went for at least an hour. I sitting in with us, and that was just was all a blur. And like, and that was that 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 gig was what it was amazing. And then we played in Poland too. We played at the Warsaw Jazz Festival like summer in '99. Played in front of Badesky, Martin, and Wood in this giant old uh, the Communist Party meeting hall, super fancy, big old granite. All yeah, over yeah. the place in the giant cool. like Kremlin complex in the middle of Warsaw that Stalin had built. Jesus, and it was insane. And uh, and they they had this film crew with booms and dollies, and the whole thing's filming. So you can find it on YouTube. The whole hour, our 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 hour set. I'm like got a rubber chicken mask on and shit, you know, because <laughs> we'd put on costumes. And because uh, critter shows were funny, because there was this whole like on a good show. Bigger shows in Seattle. We had Maurice Caldwell and Nick Nick Polimanakos, two friends of ours, and and we had all these costumes that we'd carry around with us, and so, and Randall Dunn, a now record producer, those three were always doing our skits, and so at some point during our show, those three would generally just spontaneously hit the costume bag, put on random costumes, and go out there and do a weird random kind of skit that would That's kind awesome. of fit into the show somehow. Occasionally it would kind of clunk, but usually it would like be this weird, really weird, like theater of the absurd. What the hell is this skit? Yeah. And um, like I remember Nick had this golden mask. He'd put he's he's Greek American, so he would be the great god Polymanakos, and then like Maurice would uh, and then uh, Randall would put on this outfit, and he would be the Baron, and he would get up on the balcony and start yelling at the band, like scolding the band in the audience because it's the Baron, and he disapproves of everything. <laughs> and like, but it would all be spontaneous. And even five minutes before they went on, I don't think these guys even knew what they were going to do. They never really even discussed it. They would just go improv shit. Yeah. And Skerrick would would get on his mic, and he would be kind of like the carn the. The ringmaster, like, you know, he had a real, he has got a real mad carnival barker kind of vibe that he can get into. And so he would be like egging them on and kind of cueing them. And they would just, and it was bad. There was a handful of times it was amazing. But really, maybe the best Critters gig, we played at the Showbox for a uh, Microsoft private party event. It was like an early Yelp. They were doing this thing called Sidewalk.com. It's about 98 or 99. And we played, and we hired this girl, Emma, to be on a computer over by Skerrick. And just kind of, we had her on her computer the whole time during the show. And she just, you know, and we never referred to her, and she never even looked at us. And so she's on stage with us on a computer, because it's a Microsoft. Right, right, right. Well, our, our lighting, our, our art guy, 
who did our slideshow and stuff, Bruce Tom. <laughs> it was called Sidewalk.com, and their their uh, slogan was, "Where do you want to go today?" It was totally early Yelp, right, right. just like Yelp. <clears throat> well, our show starts going, and the slideshow starts running, and all of a sudden, I'm noticing these like like things are coming up, like, "Who do you want to blow today?" And then later on, greed.com comes up and like some really bitter social commentary <laughs> about Microsoft is coming up on screen. She's writing it. And and well, now Bruce, our art director, Bruce, had put it in the slides. <laughs> but, you know, because we intended to be kind of anti and punk rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he like, we didn't know, you know, we didn't know what his slides were going to be. This shit starts just rolling during the show. And like after the show, I mean, the the... the the liaison lady from Microsoft just losing her fucking yeah. mind. She was freaking out, yelling at our manager. Our manager's tripping out, you know. And, oh, and at one point during the show, uh, we had M smash the computer. Oh, like funny. late in our set, she yeah. smashes the monitor, smashes the computer, you know. And greed.com is going across the screen. Who do you want to blow today? You know, all this shit. You know, total 90s punk rock, man. You know, we were That's great. 90s were so much fun. And but and eventually it all washed out. The next day everything's fine. And then we get word that like one of the higher ups at Microsoft was there, and he actually liked it. The lower level mid manager right, lady right. was they tripping were worried. out, yeah. freaking out. But yeah, the higher up got it was chuckling. You know, yeah. he was amused. He got it. Yeah. You know, but we did hate Microsoft at the time. I don't anymore. Now I hate Apple. But uh, and <laughs> <laughs> on to bigger and better things. <clears throat> But that was kind of one of our real crowning moments. I'll never forget that. Yeah, it was just like, man, the '90s were so much fun. You know, yeah. it, you know, irony was fashionable. Yeah, and just it was real. It was fashionable to be anti. You know, conformity wasn't in style yet. Yeah, you know, and so I, mean, I miss it. You know? Yeah, it wasn't. It was. It was very uncool. It's weird because now everyone I know is just trying to get their song in a commercial. Right. But back then, it was like. You didn't do Don't, that. You better not do that. Yeah, Are Bill you, Hicks would like no chase you with like a bullwhip. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so do you still are you still talk do you still talk to to Matt a lot? Yeah, and, we, and, yeah, we're 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 in touch here and there. I saw him uh, in New Orleans during Jazz Fest briefly. He played he with there? Mike Dillon there. Mike Dillon put up. Mike Dillon's take taken over New Orleans. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's where he lives now? Yeah. He's been there for about 10 years and he uh I remember one time I was in Lawrence in the '90s, and someone was like, "I was, I can't even remember." I was like, "Oh, that's a cool Billy Goat shirt. How do you know those he lived guys?" In like, Lawrence. "Oh, he lives over there." I was like, "No way!" He told me he ran into William Burroughs like in a laundromat or somewhere. Oh, really? He actually ran into Burroughs somewhere. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's Mike's doing good. Oh man, he's rocking. Yeah, he's he he is. Uh, to me and all the musicians that know him, he's kind of one of our heroes now. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, nobody works as hard as he does. And like, uh, he just keeps getting better and he just keeps dominating every, just, he's, he's a Ricky Lee Jones right-hand man for the last three years. Now yeah. he's our main accompanist on our shows. And, uh, that's a feat in and of itself. She's a real hard ass. That's man. what I heard. Yeah. I had Matt on the show, Hubbard. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't like NDA, like non-disclosure agreement about it. But he was like, "Yeah, she's a." She's oh, she's no, she she's a she's a musical ninja. She knows a yeah. million songs. She's got really deep ears. Her, her her pitch perception is incredible. Like she's, I think, got close to perfect pitch. I mean, it's like she's got ridiculous ears, knows a million songs, and is miles deep. Yeah. And isn't taking any shit. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not a... Uh, well, that's awesome that he's doing that. But Mike's been having real fun playing with her. I, th- I think he really, they really broke through. He, I mean, he said it never was difficult, but they, uh, they've gotten to a real high place. That's good. As a do, yeah. And he said it's just a gas playing with her. It's just transcendent. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's an amazing musician. Oh, man. That that's one thing about that whole class of mid to late '80s Dallas Cats. Everyone was just badass. Like even that dude that played the Chapman stick and Gary and Muller, Gary. man. Yeah, Gary from San He started Hans. as a piano player, you know, so he stick was his second thing. He was an accomplished piano player beforehand, so I remember every time I took someone to go see them cuz remember when the stick was just like before Gary, it was just something you saw Tony Levin playing in Musician magazine. <laughs> like, try this and you're like, it's a piano, it's a guitar, it's a bass and you were like, well, that's too much, man. I don't even want to see that. And then you saw it applied to a real thing and it was so badass. Yeah, I need. I need. They came to one to one bar, sometime in the last few years. Ten hands, and I didn't get to see them. But you know, I saw you guys at Tower Theater in Houston, on Ghost of a Dog. I think that was the very first gig on our last tour. Really? Mm-hmm. Famously, My, famously, because a friend of ours was real into new moons and full moons and the moon cycle and stuff, and he goes, "Yeah." I was really stoked for y'all's last tour, and then I saw that that Houston show got added, and it killed him because it was the day before a new moon, uh, and it got added at the last minute. He goes, dude, you started your tour on the day before a new moon, and that's the worst possible time to start anything, and that was our last tour as uh, that bummer. band. It was funny, and I remember him after the fact, after the band broke up, and he told us that. He goes, dude, I was heartbroken when I saw a Houston show because the way the tour was going to go, y'all were going to start on a new moon, and it was perfect. And then that show got added, and it was the day before a new moon. And he goes, oh, God, no. Well, check this out. My friend David Rice opened for you guys. David Rice is here in Austin. Yeah. I recorded his studio sometimes. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. David's he, cool. He opened for you guys, and he fell down. Oh, my I remember God. that. I remember he fell down on stage. Wow. He used to do this thing where he'd come out and talk to people in front of the mic, you know? I had no idea. God, i got to talk to him about that. Yeah. I had no idea. David I'm pretty Rice. sure that was all the same night. Sometimes those nights all I run together. I to ask him about that. But his, the guy that was managing him, I think, was managing me at the time. And so I ended up kind of going with them to that show. Sneaking into the, the, the New Bohemian show at the Tower Theater. Is that place still there? No. Okay. It, it was a Hollywood video, and now it's probably condos. Oh, right. I mean, yeah. right? Right. That's a weird thing. Oh, you know. Everything's a condo. Everything's a condo. That's why when you called, you're like, yeah, man, stores at the bottom when you th- when you're at the place next time. I, like, no, I don't live in one of those yeah. places, man. I live I, in an I old school two-story. I was at the high-dollar mixed-use development <laughs> yeah, yeah. next door. Yeah. <laughs> now it's still like 1978 over here. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, this place is cool. Mm. So, uh... Oh yeah, we didn't we didn't talk about uh, the Dead Kenny G's, but I've, I saw that band when you did that thing at Momo's like eight years ago, nine years ago. I remember you played we had there. A couple of really good gigs at Momo's. That's a great band. People can go out there and find all this stuff on on Spotify. I'm sure on iTunes, wherever you go. Because I listen you know, to really, all of I got to make a sh- a plug for one. There's yeah, I do. A, on YouTube. Look up an, an interview with the Dead Kenny G's. It's me and Skerritt being interviewed in New okay. Orleans by these guys, <laughs> and I had this idea. Of, it was all Bill Hicks influence, but the, you know, Kenny G overdubbed a soprano sax onto Louis Armstrong's recording of What a Wonderful World and then released it. And at which point, you know, there was a musical price on Kenny's head. You know, the musical world, you know, really got mad when he did that. Have you right. heard that recording? No, no. 
It's 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 Louis Armstrong's recording of What a Wonderful World with Kenny G's soprano I overdubbed can't. on it. It's one of the most biggest abominations you could imagine. That and sounds... uh, that recording is probably why the dead Kenny G's existed. Because uh, <laughs> Pat Metheny wrote a famous blog oh, in really? response to that recording oh, really? where he shreds Kenny pretty eloquently. And that blog made it all over the internet amongst musicians. And somebody of Skerrick's up in Seattle... Or somebody up in Seattle goes, I have the perfect band name, but only Skerritt can use it. The Dead Kenny G's. And apparently Skerritt got word of that and said, done. And yeah. and he and Mike Dillon and Brian Haas were the first edition. And they actually toured and it was all improv. Like all noisy ass free jazz improv shit. Their first like year. I don't even know if they had any songs. And, uh, and then Haas left and they brought me in. And, uh, and at that point, it became like Mike had a few songs, and we started actually coming up with a few tunes and recording and doing, you know, some touring. And we kind of peaked. The peak was maybe in 2010, 2011. We did about 20 shows with Primus because Mike and Skerrick had been in Les Claypool's right. Frog Brigade band. Yeah. And so we toured with Primus and Gogo Bordello. It was just awesome. And they get we had a 20-minute set. So we'd play first with a 20-minute set, which initially I thought, 20 minutes, that's bullshit. Well, until we did our first set, and it, it turned out to be the most brilliant thing in the world. Primus' sound crew loved us. You know, our mix was automated. So, I mean, as soon as we plugged in, monitors came up. It's all there. They loved us. We never went a second over our 20 minutes. That's awesome. And, uh, and we would get out there and do seven songs and just go batshit hit it as hard as we could and it got and it got to where I thought 20 minutes was the ideal set length I mean we would get in there and just kill it and get out and the crowd would love it I mean it was it was really good it was a good one you know That's we, awesome. we, it was one of the funnest tours I've ever done and uh and you know we just yeah it was really cool I had a tiny little amp but the mix was banging I mean his crew the crew the, the mixer the sound guys really liked us they all liked us that's awesome and the mix was just killing every night you know from the get go because it was and uh, and so that was really fun yeah and Les Les Claypool is a genius yeah uh, that guy he's he's way deeper than people realize it's oh like, yeah yeah yeah. super deep mind in there <laughs> so let me ask you this on this on this tour uh, you guys it's your tour on the Edie Raquel the <laughs> Bohemians tour so you guys obviously you're gonna be playing so is there any does do do you go any places that you that are only for that night like musically do you do, do, does it go to any improvisational places oh! and kick into the uh, hopefully yes yeah. That that's on a good night, you know. On a, you know, with the, with this new album with and with, you know, we're kind of it's more scripted now. I see that. I mean, with yeah. the newer and material, people and stuff, are paying money to come like see it. some things. Right. They wanna... And so, <laughs> we're kind of finding our legs live with the improv thing, you know. I mean, and ideally, ideally, when you go to our shows, years at whatever point in the future one of our shows would be there's no set list we start playing we go in and out of songs and there's connector connectors that are improvised that morph into we've had gigs like that boy there are not that many of them but when it that that's the ideal that's what I'm hoping we get yeah to. Kyle had said something about like doing a show with you guys I think it was at the Kessler and he was like the, you, I, you, I think you jammed 
like you did something and he was like Edie just started fucking I heard her having this conversation with someone backstage and she was singing shit uh-huh. from it like right right he was like it was unbelievable it's making the hair on my arm stand up just thinking about it like right we did like it we called amazing. it heavy makeup we did an after show at the Kessler and okay. it was as we went in as as premised as an all improv show okay and okay. so yeah we did that those are so scary it's like you know because it, it, it's I mean you just never know if it's going to go clunk I know on but stage. when you come out the other end and it doesn't go clunk well, what that's a the thing feeling. yeah that's like I know yes. that's like flying no doubt yeah. it is man well um man it, this has been great it's really I know, really I'm, I'm great. long-winded I know I've, I've that's what I that's what I want <laughs> on the show <laughs> Um, I'm long-winded. The Edie Brickell New Bohemians record is called Rocket. comes out October 12th, right? It's uh, produced by one of my very best friends, Kyle Crusham. Kyle Crusham. Did a great job with it. The single, What Makes You Happy, is available now. Absolutely fantastic. There's a video for it, too, where, <laughs> where John Bush is wearing a boa. That's all, that's all you need to know. Uh, really. Uh, you can find uh, Brad at BassHauser.com. Links to all of the music that goes on. Also... I checked out that Grassy Knoll project you played on. That's amazing. Yeah, Bob Green's. I mean, I mean Nolan Green's project. Yeah, I yeah. want to meet that guy. He is very cool. You know, he runs um, Machine Head Coffee is his coffee shop. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. you just walk in, man. He's usually there. Okay. Oh, He's a really cool bass player. You know, he his records came out, like, I got the first Grassy Knoll CD in 93, and he was an influence on Critters Buggin. Oh, really? Wow, it was like more cool. like, hey, he's kind of on the same vibe we are, and he's got a record deal. Wow, maybe there's hope for us. Yeah. I remember it was like, wow, that's cool. And now I end up playing on his thing yeah. years later. and so That's awesome. Yeah, there is a similarity between the two. Well, man, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for doing the show. Always a pleasure to get to see you play and hang out and talk to you. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a great time. <laughs> what makes you happy? Yes, Brad Hauser from Critters Buggin', Dead Kenny G's, and of course, Edie Brickell and New Bohemians, whose new album, Rocket, drops October 12th, and they will be on tour this this fall, anywhere, uh, everywhere, basically. Yeah, you can hear their single and see the video for their single, What Makes You Happy. Go to ebnewbos.com. You can find Brad at basshauser.com, see all the projects that he's been a part of. So many. This guy's played on so many records. Always, always great to sit down and talk to Brad. Such a great musician and such a great dude. I want to thank him for coming over. That was a great, great, great time. All right. Hope you enjoyed it. Hey, don't forget, while you're out there checking out uh, Edie Brickell and New Bohemian's new album online, maybe you're checking out the new single, What Makes You Happy, on Spotify. You can find How Did I Get Here on Spotify. Yes, you can. They have podcasts on there now. You can follow us. You'll get a new show every Tuesday and every Friday. And don't forget, we're basically wherever you find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, anywhere. Get into it. All right? All right. I hope you guys have a great time. Don't forget, uh, Edie Brickell and New Bohemians will be on tour all of this fall. Go to ebnewbows.com for all of your Edie Brickell and New Bohemians needs. All right, have a great week, whatever it is you're doing. Great weekend. Great weekend. That's what it is. Great weekend. (laughs) Let's get down. Yeah.